0: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA Pacifica Radio. My guest is Andrew McCarthy, who has a novel, Just Fly Away. Andrew McCarthy has written a couple of travel books, The Longest Way Home, Journey Home, editor, Best American Travel Writing 2015. Andrew McCarthy is also an actor. Pretty in Pink, probably the best known, but there was also St. Elmo's Fire. Several films going down to a TV show last year called The Family. Yeah, The Family. Yeah, it was short-lived. And TV directing. You've done a lot of directing of series shows, which actually I want to ask you about because... That's something no one ever talks about, which is if you're a director of a TV show that's been on a while and has a showrunner and people, and you're walking in and doing it, what does that mean? But we'll get to that in a bit. First, let's talk about your writing career, which has led you to this novel. I understand this novel began as a different novel, an adult novel that you have been writing for like seven years?
1: Yeah, I had been messing around with this idea of a book about a guy who has a one-night fling and has a kid out of it. The whole notion was the notion of secrecy and how incrementally that can sort of destroy one's life. And so it was a book about a guy who had this kid and he didn't tell his family. And I worked on it, yes, like you said, about six, seven years. And I just couldn't seem to crack it. And I mean, I did other things at the same time. I stopped and put it down and wrote a travel book and various other things. My favorite character is always a 15-year-old daughter, though who is a very, very minor character in it, and one day I just turned it around and started writing from her perspective. I was sitting on a plane waiting to take off, and I just said, my dad's got another kid across town. And from there it just sort of started, and so what it, I'd struggled
0: with for months and months or years quickly just sort of came out. Just Fly Away is a young adult novel. Is it the same novel that you would have written if you were not thinking young adult? I could have certainly written an adult novel from a 15-year-old girl's point of view,
1: but there was something about, and I knew nothing really about YA genre as it were, but there was something about the emotional kind of immediacy and directness that YA speaks to that I thought was really useful, and I was writing from that place in myself, that 15-year-old in myself who that hurt, angry, lonely, and writing exactly to that spot in myself too, so I knew instantly that it was... A YA thing, you know. And like I said, I didn't have a lot of experience reading YA. I didn't. I just sort of knew that there was this sort of emotional,
0: ferocious vulnerability about that YA genre that I liked. Is the story that you were writing those seven years, pieces of things that didn't quite work. Is that basically the story only told from her point of view? No,
1: it's not at all. Actually, I mean, the the inciting event is the only thing really that's similar. It's okay. like I, ha- I had six, seven, I mean, so many drafts of that novel. And it took place over 25 years of a marriage. And the daughter was 15 for maybe 10 pages in the book. And I loved her at that moment. You know, and it was as if that book, the metaphor is is that it was like a tree in the woods that died and fell down. And from it, this book was sucked all the nutrients out of that nurse tree and became this. I mean, the characters are the same. The girl has a sister. Lucy has a sister and her parents. Their jobs are the same. Their hometown is the same. The inciting incident is the same. But from then on, Everything was different. It, it sort of launched into a... I think there's one scene when the father finally confesses is the only scene that was similar in both books. The rest, this, Lucy runs away from home. She goes up to
0: Maine's looking for answers. All, all that's different. Was the wife as calm about it all in the other version?
1: No, because it went, like, say, over 25 years. Oh, so you yeah, got so. from the moment of the wife finding out
0: and then all that. What I thought
1: was interesting about, and sort of YA of it all... We don't really know the wife's reaction because as a teenager and these kind of things, it's only from... Lucy's very unreliable, and so it's only from her perspective that whatever her mother's going through, we don't really know. It's only Lucy just sees these things on the surface and reacts to them, and she alludes briefly to a moment when her mother didn't speak for a while, and maybe that was when she found out, all that kind of stuff. But there's something very subjective about that YA kind of thing that when you're that age, the world is so revolving around you. You just took the voice wherever it went at that point it told me where to go I thought it was going one direction and then the only thing I did write in the novel was listen to Lucy and she told me where to go I thought I I would be writing sentences and I wouldn't know where the sentence was going to finish when I started it and then I'm like oh, she got on the train oh if she got on the train well if she got on the train then she's going to New York and she's she's in New York oh she's going to Maine oh she's going to Maine the book ended very differently than I thought it would when I began. But, I, you know, like I said, I was I messed around. Once I found Lucy's voice, I messed around with that for about 100 pages before I even took seriously what I was doing. I was writing that and writing from Lucy's perspective, writing this whole new story. And I kept saying to myself, I've already got this book. This is not my book. I don't know what I'm doing. i And, you know, we play tricks with ourselves, you right. know. And the minute I decided, no, this is the book, the rest has all just been fodder for this, then I, of course, couldn't write anything for several months,
0: you know. Is the process for you of creativity than just saying, well, screw it, it may not work, it will work? Does that relate at all to either you're directing or you're acting? They all feed each other, certainly. But what I've learned in 30-odd
1: years of doing, quote-unquote, creative endeavors, acting, directing, and travel writing, and these kind of things, is I've learned to understand my relationship to process and my own process often is. you know, I heard John Cleese once the you know the great comedian talk about he was talking about uh, Monty Python and when they used to do write create stuff and he said I wasn't the funniest or the best in the room, but I was willing to live without an answer for the longest. and so often my stuff is better because I was willing to be uncomfortable and not know for longer than anybody else in the room. And I thought that was great. I' really took that to heart when I heard that. So I understood my process and in this I was just messing and I just said I
0: Something's going on, and I'm just going to just be fine with not knowing. When you're developing a character, on some level, you're messing around at the beginning. Totally, of course. Yeah. I mean, so in that sense, you're going to know at a certain point, well, I'm going to take the character there, or I'm not. And so in that sense, you're kind of going similarly, aren't you? You mean in acting? Yeah. Well, in acting, you're bound by the words that
1: you're given. You're told where to go. Acting's different, though, you know... Acting is all very subjective and it's very, it's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of voodoo in acting where you just sort of kind of get in this kind of mess around in this emotional pool and keep yourself there. And then you sort of, as the day wears on, you know, and you're monitoring yourself emotionally throughout Mm -hmm. the day. But you don't have to be a grown up in any way when you're acting. In fact, Mm -hmm. you don't want to be the grown up in the room at all in any way. Whereas if you're writing or directing, you need to do both, of course, because you want to be in the characters thing where if you're writing, you're subjective in her world and letting her go, oh, and be surprised. But you also have to be the grown-up and go, well, wait, we've got to drive the story. The story's going here, and I'm have to I'm responsible for pace and all these kind of things. Right. And why is the scene in the book? Is it forwarding the story and all that? And it's the same with directing you know, television shows.
0: So going back to the original idea, which is that after five years, a husband reveals to his wife that he's got a kid from a one-night stand. And th- this is at the beginning the first few pages yeah. of Just Fly Away. And this is from the, gir- the daughter's perspective, what she hears years later. Where did that original idea come from, the original idea that set the fail novel? I was sitting at home...
1: And I had an idea for how a book started, which was a guy having sex in a bathroom with a woman who was not his wife at a party. And that was how that book started. And I had a great five pages. You, it really was a great hook. <laughs> and, right. and then it turned out, oh, this woman isn't his wife. He's at some party, and he'd never seen her before, and he never sees her again until eight months later. He sees her walking across the street very pregnant, and he does the quick math and goes, oh, my God, that's my kid. So that's where it all came from. And then I, then I followed – I, I was interested in the idea, like I said, of secrecy and how increment, like water torture, one little bit, one little secret, another little thing, and just separates us beyond repair. In, in and I was interested in the marriage, the idea right. of, of marriage and what it means
0: and what a long marriage entails. Was that third person then? or was That it f- was. That was a close third person. Yeah. Close third person. Yeah. yeah. And, and what kept happening? I mean, why, why didn't it work, do you think? Well, it
1: starts with a very unsympathetic act, and he But there are many books about unsympathetic sure. narratives. So, yeah. but there was something I don't know. You know, I ultimately don't know why, except it just it didn't seem to uh, gather enough momentum. It seemed too a little, probably too unwieldy for my limited skills to get, carry it through twenty-five years. And there's a certain inexorable quality to it that lacked suspense and drive. You know, because it inexorably was going to this moment when I knew where it was going, and so. But for me, I was unable to sort of keep the ball in the air as it were, you know, and it just seemed kind of sad. Was your director's mind at work going, okay, you know— Well, in directing, you're always trying to—you always have to fix it in directing. You always have to be fixing because I can't walk away from this next—this hour. There's two hours I've allotted for this scene. I cannot walk away from this until I fix this. So— and in a book, you're not really trying to fix it because thats it's not going to work, okay. right? So I was constantly trying to fix things that ultimately weren't somehow working. And I never did get to the bottom of it. But I do kind of think it's what it took to get me to this. Because once I started writing this, I knew the whole world. The whole world was just right in front of me. I knew all the characters. I knew their hometown. I knew the streets very well. I knew everything about them. And so it was... Was just a Rashomon kind of turning something on its ear. And so and that was just liberating after
0: struggling for so long. Did you think about taking her journey through the buses like she did? You mean literally?
1: Yeah. Well, I live in New York, so I I have. I mean, I have taken those. And
0: I was planning to when I was trying the set, and then I realized I didn't need to. You know the area in Maine? I do. Yeah, my, my father used to live up there. Oh, so you were just basically going back in time in some way.
1: You know, it's just that kind of thing where reality and things mishmash around. You stir up the pot and sort of outcomes what came out.
0: Well, well, one of the things I noticed, Andrew McCarthy, about Just Fly Away is that even though the failed novel went in different directions, there seemed to be an underpinning in the entire story. It felt like there was more going on outside the story that we just didn't know about, which is a good thing. The other novel would have informed all those kind of things. There, I would spend
1: chapters and chapters talking, and in this thing, I just reference it quickly, you know, in these it, kind of little things. And again, it's, it's just from her perspective, and, you know, our perspective is so limited, you know. I did
0: want the world to be existing beyond the, the edge of her awareness, certainly. You've written a lot on travel. Is there any relationship between the travel writing, do you think, on some level, and writing a novel? Well, I certainly felt comfortable once she hit the road in this book, when she just sort of
1: accidentally really just kind of walked out of her house and suddenly was on a road trip that she told no one about. I, I felt very at home there. The theme of escape, I think, is one that I explore a lot. I like, you know, in my other book, it was largely about escaping one's right. life and sort of running. Are we running away or are we running too? And I always think that um, I'm a great believer in escape. I don't think you know, that wherever you go, there you are is all very true. And yet we can sort of jettison ourselves and run smack into what we were looking for without knowing that's what we were looking for, which is what happens to Lucy in the book and what's happened to me in my life very many times. You know, travel sort of been the university of my life, I say, because I I would figure things out by leaving and confronting myself.
0: You went to the top of Kilimanjaro, you went into the jungles and Costa Rica and, and the Amazon to find out who you were. I guess.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I was also doing on writing, travel writing assignments and things. But I mean, okay. I, I mean, my writing, travel writing has always been sort of first person experiential. You know, I'm a great believer that travel transforms people and changes people. So that's sort of the thread that's underneath every travel story that I ever do. I may be writing about Paris, but really what I'm writing is about is this is amazing. It changed my life. It'll change yours too.
0: I want to go back to your beginnings. Back in the days when you were just learning acting, were you also writing?
1: No, I didn't come to writing for years and years. I don't. I didn't read. <laughs> I was not a reader. I don't think I read a book really? till I was 30. No, I didn't write at all. I mean, writing came to me sort of accidentally while I was traveling. I would travel a lot for months at a time and in faraway places, and I would start to get lonely at times and a bit untethered and someone suggested I keep a journal. So I tried to keep a journal and that was kind of a pathetic effort, you know. Oh, I'm so lonely. The food's so bad. I want to go home. And every day was the same in my journal. you know. <laughs> so I just began writing down once I was in, and exactly when I was in Saigon and a kid pulled up next to me on a scooter and he said, hop on, I'll give you a ride. I'm like, leave me alone. Because no, i give you a ride. Leave me alone. I'll give you a ride. And he wasn't going away. So I hopped on a scooter and he showed me Saigon. He showed me where his father was arrested, where his mother's Garden used to tend garden. Anyway, he, I spent the day with this kid, and I went back to my hotel room and I wrote down what happened. And I know just from intuitively, even for having been an actor for so long, I know story and that it's about story. If I did any one thing right in being a travel writer, I knew very quickly was tell me a story, don't sell me a destination. And so I told that story. I've said so much bad dialogue. I know good dialogue when I hear it. So I just wrote it down, and and suddenly when I wrote that down, I just felt like oh my god, there I am there I am. And it was the same feeling I had when I was 15 years old when I walked on a stage the first time and I just went, oh my God, there I am. And it was that feeling of locating myself. And so then I was smart enough to pursue, well, because I didn't have any other choice. I I, I just pursued the acting because I, that was, I found myself there and I pursued that. And then with the travel writing, with this writing, I pursued that too. And I, you know, I did that on my own for 10 years before I ever pursued an editor to try and publish anything.
0: Uh, well, going back to when you were an actor, you you got the lead in the first film you auditioned for. Right? I did, yeah. I was like winning the lottery.
1: I was kicked out of college, and then two weeks later, a friend of mine called me up and said, he, looking in the newspaper and backstage, the unemployed actor's newspaper, and he said, uh, they're casting a movie. They're looking for someone 18, vulnerable, and sensitive. And I was like, uh, dude, that's me. And so <laughs> I went up to the Ansoni Hotel and Broadway and 73rd with 500 other 18 vulnerable and sensitive kids. And uh, eventually I, you know, 10 auditions later was doing love scenes in an elevator with Jacqueline Bissett. It was like winning the lottery. I should have quit right then.
0: <laughs> when it came out, and I guess, did that come out before other films? Uh, was it the first one first that come one, out too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did... Suddenly, people recognize you on the street. You? No, that movie didn't do well, and then I didn't think I
1: worked for another year after that. But then, Pretty in Pink, it was the one I did a couple movies, and then I did Pretty in Pink,
0: and that became successful. No, St. Almost Fire. That's when my life started to change. You were considered part of this Brat Pack. I mean, were you looking at that and going, "Who the hell are we? I don't know these people." Or
1: now, it's spoken of as in a you know this iconically affectionate term, but at the time, it was a very pejorative kind of thing for these entitled little brats, you know, <laughs> and that all came about because a couple of the guys went out drinking with a reporter, which is like, really, what, what part of you thought that was a good idea? Right. And I happened to be making a movie with them at the time, and so he labeled everyone who was there that, and it stuck, you
0: know, it's a good name, it stuck. You were kind of a loner and, you know, not exactly the most popular kid on the planet when you were in high school, and suddenly you're getting these roles where you're the opposite of that. Yeah, I mean, it was all very odd to me at the time,
1: but there was no plan, you know. It's like there's still no plan. You look at the right. things that I've done, you kind of go, huh, how did that lead to that? And, you know, there's no plan at foot here. You know, I was just a young kid looking for the next job. Things might have been very different if I actually had, did have a plan and or, you know, listened to people. Yeah, I mean, I think Pretty and Pink, suddenly I was playing this very patrician kid, and it's just not, was not my upbringing. But I was also very sort of reserved and and frightened, and it came off as sort of aloof, and so it gave me a certain air of a certain kind of thing, which was really just fear being masked, so I didn't look afraid, and so it gave me kind of disinterested coolness that was not
0: actually what I was feeling. Then you got into Less Than Zero. How was working with Robert Downey at the time? That movie... Well, it wasn't successful certainly when it came
1: out and it was and we reshot a lot of that movie because when the studio executives finally saw it they realized oh this is a movie about our kids and this, they can't behave like this so they oh, so, and really? it was the 80s you know it was a Nancy Reagan just say no era so you know a lot of it was reshot to flushing cocaine down toilets and trying to do that kind of so the movie ended up being a bit of a mishmash and not Particularly very successful, I don't think, and it was hard for everyone. I think Bobby was having a hard time at that point, and we were all it was all a lot shot at night, and it was all you know the eighties. It was not not pretty. You were not dealing too well at that point with celebrity. I certainly withdrew, and I wasn't comfortable. I was not a Kennedy. I was not bred for success in that <laughs> way. You know, it was it was surprising to me when I was suddenly inundated with sort of attention kind of thing. I didn't quite know. I was surprised by that, and. Suddenly, like, a big wave smashed
0: on top of me, and I was standing there dripping wet, and I was, so I was a bit shocked by that. Somewhere along the line, you decided that you would try theater, and you wound up in Broadway in the 90s. Well, I'd started doing plays in New York First time I was on Broadway, I guess it was 85, and
1: then I just sort of came around back to to doing theater, and it just sort of, you know... But like you do any project, you never know which ones are going to be the successful ones and which ones are just going to... You know, you think "This this is it. Like when doing Pretty in Pink at the time, I thought this is a silly movie about a girl making a dress, going to a dance. Why, why were we making a whole movie about this? And, you know, 30 years later, we're still talking about it. So
0: you never know what's going to be successful or not. You also did some interesting films like uh, Joy Luck Club and Mrs. Parker and the Vicious mm. Circle. I mean, these were not films that are necessarily well-remembered today, but they were good films.
1: Yeah. It was an odd thing, I suppose, because I was very successful in a certain way when I was young, and they, they weren't particularly the kind of movies – they weren't re- well-respected, certainly, those movies. Like, you know, The Pretty Pink's and The Animal's Fires of the World. You know, they were not – they didn't really even do that well at the time. But because it coincided with VHS, they were – suddenly you could take those movies home and people could take ownership of us in a way that generations before never could. So people watched those movies 20, 30 times and suddenly, you know, I'm forever placed as a 22-year-old in their <laughs> minds, you know, which is lovely. And then I, I drank too much, and so I hid behind it with all that, For went on for a while, and
0: it's a meandering path. It sounds as if there was a point. Maybe there wasn't, where suddenly Andrew McCarthy's going, what the hell am I doing, and begins to rethink what he's doing. Well, in
1: hindsight, I suppose it can look that way. But at the time, you're just sort of doing the next thing that comes along. I do think that travel writing sort of gave me another chance at creativity in a certain way and reinvigorated my sort of creative life, certainly, because I was just doing movies that aren't particularly very interesting or parts that weren't particularly very interesting, and I wasn't that interested in them. You know, in my life, I started traveling... And then when my life sort of became changed by travel, it, I found it a value, like saying. so then the writing again, just sort of by following my nose, it became something. How did you get into the directing? I'd made a short film, and then I was acting on a show called Lipstick Jungle, and a director fell out, and I was sitting actually at lunch with the producer, and he goes, oh, hold on, he answered his phone, and he goes, oh, And he hung up, and I said, what's the matter? And he goes, oh, our next director dropped out. And I said, oh, I'll do it. And he just looked at me and said... Okay. <laughs> and so there I was. But I mean, it had been something I'd been wanting to do. And so, like I said, I made a short film from a Frank O'Connor story and stuff. And and so I began television directing. And you know, I quickly had an aptitude for it because I've been around sets my whole life. I don't like to waste time. I know what needs to be done. I know what time is wasted on. And I came in on time and under budget. And in television, that makes you a very good director. And then you add on top of that, if you actually have an idea on top of
0: that, Jesus, you're Orson Welles. So It's just a job I knew how to do intuitively. Getting into this, a lot of shows have specific looks and feels, and certainly you're dealing with a showrunner, and you're going from show to show. Do you do research before you walk in on any of these shows? Well, you certainly watch the show. You definitely want to
1: watch the show and see what, you know, but if it's a new show, there isn't much to go by. But, right. you know, I kind of look at episodic directing as like going to director gym. It's as if you go and go, this week, it's, this show's done in a very handheld sort of verite style. So this week, it's like doing, I'm doing biceps. Next week, it's very studio mode, so I'm doing chest next week. And so you get in great shape, you build your muscles, you know. And that's really interesting. But, yes, you go in and you, there are certain tools, besides knowing what to do on the floor, and how to run a set and how to stay on time and on budget and deal with performances because I'm an actor. Right? So I have every, every bad neurotic habit that an actor has. I have them all, so I understand them. an actor, so I'm able to quickly help actors through that. And actors give me the benefit of the doubt because I'm one of them, so they, I walk in and they trust me. And I pay attention. They see that I'm watching them, whereas many TV directors don't watch. They're watching their wristwatch because that's the most important thing on a TV. You have to make the donuts directing is like any job where you have a lot of people where it's you're just empowering people to do the best that they can and if you see that there be people being seen and appreciated and valued they're going to work better and faster and you're going to go home sooner and then you go home sooner the first day they go oh wow it's going to be like this the next this week so they come in and the guy I always say like the example is the prop guy comes to me the first day and says I got a blue one and I got a red one which one do you want I'm like I don't know which one do you want which do you like he goes I, I don't know. I got a blue and a red. I go, yeah, which one do you like? I like the red one. Okay, we'll use the red one. Next day he comes to me and goes, I got a blue and I got a red. I like the red. This is why. I'm like, oh cool, let's use the red. Next day he comes to me, I got a blue, red, and an orange. It didn't say anything about an orange, but I thought the orange might be good because his sister loves orange. I go, yeah, let's use the orange one. And suddenly the orange is a great idea and I get credit for it because I'm the director. And he's empowered, he's working, he's creating, he goes home (laughs) having a great time, his whole crew's working better, and everybody's doing a better job and the show's better. And the showrunner comes to me and goes, I love the way you had the orange one in there. That was great. But that's like any kind of boss job, right? You know, TV directing, you are not the boss. The showrunner, which is generally the writer, is the boss. Whereas in movies, the writer is the first one under the bus. But in TV, the challenge is often those writers are not cinematic or visual people. So sometimes they are, but often they're not. It's navigating personalities. The the people that work forever in television directing are great get-along guys. Hey, go do this. Sure, great idea. I tend not to necessarily be that way. I often have a strong opinion and... You know, I have learned with confidence and time to sort of go, you know what, but it's not my bat and ball. If they want me to do a certain thing, sure, I'll go do it. But let me just explain to you why I'm doing this in the other way. And they'll often go, oh, actually, that's a better idea do that. And other times they'll go, no, no, I want to do that. Certain writers just want to see their faces talking. And that's what they want. Other writers are fine to be completely visual style. And I don't need to say, you can be on the back of his head when he talks. It's fine. But there are other writers that, you know, so you have to know what they want. So you want to not mess with their show too
0: much, but they want you to bring something to it. So it's finding that sort of happy balance. Do any of those episodes, single episodes of any of those shows stand out for you in terms of your own creativity where you kind of say, I nailed that one really well? there are two episodes when you asked that that come to mind which I didn't know I had never thought
1: about on Orange is the New Black the first season there was an episode about a chicken the girl sort of finds a chicken or there's a chicken in the prison somehow and there was something about that I just did well and then the show, Halt and Catch Fire, uh, is a very interesting, good show, I think, and I did a particularly good episode of television, you know, and it was about, nothing happened in the episode, but it was about the 4th of July weekend when people weren't working, and it's a show about people who are working, and so it was
0: about a weekend when they weren't working, and that, that sort of suits me anyway. How do you fit in the, uh, the travel and the travel writing with all of the directorial work, though? Well, like I said, before I like to escape, <laughs> you know, they all feed each other.
1: When I do less travel writing now. I do a lot more from my desk than I used to. Um, there were a number of years, like five years, I suppose, where I was really intensively traveling, travel writing. I do less of it now
0: than I would. I mean, I love it and I miss it, but, uh, you know, my life is situated that it's, it's not. Now that you're, you're writing novels, you don't have to do that. Do you think about something like Just Fly Away becoming a screenplay? I work in a screenplay
1: business. As I was writing it, I was seeing the whole thing. Right. You know what I mean. So that's how I learned. My, learned my whole life is, but visually, I'm a visual learner like many people. And so, I was just seeing it as I was, and then I wrote down what I saw. So you know, we'll have to see. I suppose if it's successful, then people will buy it. If it's
0: not successful, people won't buy it. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I guess. I mean, sometimes people see something that other people don't see. Yeah, too. sure. You, you never know. Would you want to direct it?
1: No. If I did, I would write the screenplay. Uh, I I would like to do that, I would think. But no, because it's not the genre of movie art. And when you're directing – I haven't directed a film yet, and I have a very clear idea of sort of what I'd like to do, and this isn't that genre, and you get pegged very quickly. You only get one chance to make that – you know, in acting – I was suddenly making these kind of teen movies and I didn't wasn't aware of being and I wouldn't have the wherewithal to alter that course to sort of take it where I wanted to go. And in travel writing it's interesting because when I started travel writing I was very conscious to agent myself the way I would like to have been agent in, in acting when I was a kid. And I thought, they're gonna think, who's this interloper actory guy, thinks he's a writer? Okay, great. So most editors, you're approaching through email anyway. So I knew that by the time I was, quote, outed for being an actor, which would eventually happen, I wanted to have written for the New York Times, National Geographic, and all these, and the Atlantic, and all these good magazines. So when the, the minute I was finally outed, go, wait, this is the guy from Pretty and Pink thinks he's a travel writer. Then they go, oh, wait, he's written for the New York Times, the Atlantic, the National Geographic. We can't dismiss him so quickly.
0: Well, when you say you were outed as an actor. Well, oh, just
1: one of the pe- editors realized that and they used it as a, tried to use it as some publicity thing. Oh, so- you know what I mean? So. <laughs> And it was like, but what did it matter? You know, right. at that point, it didn't matter. It wasn't like some vanity thing where I'm, I like to travel and go places, so I'm going to write about it. It wasn't that, you know, and I didn't want it to be perceived as that. And so I made sure I couldn't be easily
0: dismissed at it. So in the very beginning, you know, there could be Andrew McCarthy, there could be dozens of yeah, Andrew McCarthy's exactly. And there. it was just, you know, I
1: never spoke to others. It's all done by email. Right. And I
0: wrote a good story and there it was. And so they just accepted it, mm-hmm. and, and it didn't occur to them Pretty in Pink. <laughs> no,
1: they were not. It was not on their minds, no. <laughs> Shocking as that may be that Pretty and Pink is not on everyone's mind all the time, unless you're a woman
0: of a certain age. Andrew McCarthy, you, you made an interesting comment. You said this is not the genre and that you only get one shot at a film if you want to, like, set up your career as a a director. So what is the genre? What do you want to do? Well, there are
1: themes in this, actually, in this book. that uh, The father and son theme, I think, which is largely what this book's really about, is a sort of the sins of the father kind of thing. I mean, I came from teen acting movies, and I was so pegged with that I didn't particularly want to. I I don't know that I would want to make a film about a teen coming-of-age story, although I think they're beautiful stories. It's just not. uh, What what would you do? I mean... I I have a, a story that I... A wonderful story that I saw from an article in a magazine that I'm adapting finally. People have asked me for a while now, since I've been just doing this writing thing for a number of years, that why don't I incorporate, you know, marry the two? Why aren't you writing parts for yourself and movies, you know, and I very actively kept them separate for the last 10 years because I suppose I have so much history with acting and this kind of thing. And whatever baggage I have with all that and the writing was such a rebirth sort of for me creatively I wanted to actively keep them separate but now I'm sort of starting to realize that they can come together and so I'm writing this thing that I from an article a father-son kind of thing and
0: you might play the father. No, I would not be a hit. <laughs> <laughs> but you like doing the acting still because you're still I doing do. it. I do. You mean, have an, I, a movie coming out.
1: I hadn't acted in about five years or so until I did that, that show you mentioned a while ago, The Family, uh, which was interesting because I played uh, a pedophile on the show, which was an interesting and I suppose if I'd still been actively trying to really have this acting career, I might have looked twice and gone, "Well, is this the kind of thing I should be doing?" You know. Whereas I have a day job in directing, and so uh, and then travel writing and whatnot. So I kind of, when that came up, I said, "What the hell? This is really interesting, peculiar, disturbed person. I want to let's do that." And I really enjoyed it again. I loved uh, the acting in a way that I hadn't in years. You know, because I suppose it was free of the vanities and all that. I mean, if you're playing a pedophile, you're not playing someone who's an attractive personality. So. Right. That was very liberating. Also, it's a bit like when people ask me, "How can you do write a book in the voice of a fifteen-year-old girl?" That distance from self made it very liberating to inhabit fully. You know.
0: Well, it also opens you up in the future because people see that and they go, "Well, Andrew McCarthy is no longer a twenty-two-year-old teenager." Yeah, teen, I
1: mean, but... yes and no. I mean, I, I don't think you can. I don't think that ever works. You know, really? I, and i think. For me, I just do what feels right to do. I can't do that as a motivation for something else. When I've done something as a means to get something else, it's never been successful to me. When I've done something because I believe in it, it either hits or it doesn't, and that's fine. If it doesn't, I can live with that. But if I've done something as a means for something else and it doesn't work, then I'm like, well, that's hollow. That feels
0: bad. I'm going to change the subject here. You're a travel writer, and what we've seen since the um, inauguration of Donald Trump is – a series of executive orders, things coming out of customs and immigration. And it looks like the entire travel industry in the United States is going to be very damaged because why would anybody come to this country? As a travel writer, someone who goes around, are you seeing any of this? In my travels around the world, I have found that
1: the world, it seems much better than we are at differentiating between our government and our people and our country. You know, a lot of places I go, people go, I don't agree with your government. Americans are great. They're really curious. They're interested. They're courteous and they tip well. You know, But your government, I think, is kind of crazy or something. 38% of Americans have passports, I think, around there. Half of us have ever used them and most of them to go to Mexico or Canada. America is a great country. I love America, but America is a very fearful country We make so many of our decisions based in fear. And if we traveled the world, we would see that you know, that guy with the towel wrapped around his head probably isn't trying to kill me. We come back very, very different people. Mark Twain's great line of travels fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow this says it all. And I, so I think if Americans traveled, you would, they would come back very differently, and they would have their own opinions as opposed to opinions they're told to have about the world. And I think we would, our place in the world would change drastically if everybody got off their couch and left the country
0: <laughs> at least once. Well, I'm also concerned because we're having something called the Trump slump. Look, there'll be a lot of
1: jobs lost, which is not uh, not winning, is it?
0: Yeah, it's not a good moment.
1: <laughs> I don't know what to say about it except it's. Yeah, I know. I know, but what more can
0: we do than go be good uh, ambassadors for our country? You know, out there. Well, I guess you're right. I mean, if we all go travel, then we see what the world is like, and Americans are insular.
1: Very. You know, and I think we come back, like it does, it just changes people. And I think I joke that I'm out to change the world one travel story at a time, but it's not a joke in the sense of if I write a story about Paris and you read it and you go, I want to go to Germany, I'm like, go. Go to you know, and there's something underneath the motivation of my story, like I was talking about earlier. That travel's vital. It's important. It matters. It's not that Paris I'm writing about. I'm talking about that feeling. And if that feeling triggers something in you, to, but then you've always wanted to go to Germany, go to Germany. You're going to come back. You're going to treat your wife differently. You're going to treat your kids differently. It's like the little pebble in the water, and it ripples out and ripples out, and we affect a hundred people. I do a lot of talks on travel often, and I often say to the crowd, "Well, it's the last best hope for humanity
0: is travel, because you know the world would be changed by us." Do you see your Fiction writing or you're directing or acting, do you see that can have an impact too? I've had people over the years come up to me, so many people say, you know, Lesson Zero kept me
1: off drugs. Or, you know, Weekend at Bernie's, I was recovering from cancer and every day I watched that movie and it made me laugh so much. So, you know, any time that we can feel less alone, if I can do that
0: to someone, then that's a a beautiful feeling, you know? Are you aware that in 2012 when the Oakland A's won games that nobody expected they did something a dance called the bernie <laughs> yes <laughs> i am quite aware of course <laughs> but the, bernie that, lives on it's amazing really <laughs> yeah does that get really weird knowing that this movie you did kind of is a whatever kind of movie suddenly has this impact no it's <laughs> i know it was uh, yeah bernie lives celebrity Culture in America is another issue, and you were caught in that. Um, did that push you in the direction of where you kind of went down downhill? You know, when you did your your alcohol stuff, Do you? Think that no,
1: works? I always say that I, you know, I. I would have just drank ch- cheaper vodka, you know, if I hadn't been successful. That would have had nothing. To, one had nothing to do with the other, you know. I think if you have that propensity, it sort of pours a little lighter fluid on it, maybe. But so I don't think, certainly, celebrity or any of that had any real effect on my uh, drinking. I, I, that would have ha- that would have been its, its itself anyway. But I thank God I wa- there wasn't all the Snapchat and photos and all these things when I was doing all the things I was doing. My God, I don't know how you. Be- young people do it now in that regard. So yes, we thought we were right on the leading edge of these things. But looking back now, it all seems very quaint.
0: Yeah, I once interviewed uh, about five years ago, I interviewed Ashley Judd. And she came in through the back door of the station. I mean, we're talking politics, because that's her thing is politics. And she came in through the back door of the station. And I said, can you do a picture? She said, sure, but don't put it on Facebook, because TMZ will get it. And she was fearful, she was terrified. It was a very strange feeling. A lot of times you just sort of go, oh no, Push away and
1: pull it towards you at the same time. I just, it, it, you know, I, I certainly haven't been the victim of it in any, any real huge way. It's my whole life has been fairly publicish, you know, and so you're aware that certain people might notice you in a room, and so you're aware that you're sort of on in public all the time. But that's just been a facet of my life since I was 22. I'd be, I, I'm, you know, it's not like I'm Brad Pitt either, so it's not happening all the time. But it's it's certainly being famous at. A very early age altered who I was to become, certainly. You know, I think fame cellularly changes people. But, you know, I don't try and pay any attention, really. It's not something I cultivate or push against. I think the more you push against that stuff,
0: it brings it right to you. Andrew McCarthy, now you've written Just Fly Away. You are working on another novel?
1: I am. I have this idea. It's actually another YA thing. So I'm just messing around, though, at the moment on that.
0: You're an editor-at-large at National Geographic
1: traveler. What does that mean? It means nothing except I have a relationship there and I can do, you know,
0: stories that are really good. A number of people were upset because Murdoch bought National Geographic. Have you noticed any difference?
1: You know, the the paper has changed in the magazine and things are... um, yeah, I think, but I don't work in, in, a, in a, any kind of corporate way with them. I have a very sort of independent sort of voice. It hasn't changed me because I just deal with the editor and whatever, so it doesn't. But I know that they've had changes, certainly.
0: And you have a movie coming
1: out. No, that was some movie that was made a number of years ago that isn't good. Hopefully it will never come out. <laughs> <laughs> so you have nothing nothing on the horizon that one. Well, not acting-wise, no. I'm going to be uh, producing and directing a new television show called Condor, which is a a loose remake of the old Robert Redford, Three Days of the Condor movie. So we're doing a 10-part uh, television sort of adaptation that's pretty cool with William Hurt and Max Irons, and oh. so we'll start that next month. What's your role in that? I'm producing and directing a bunch of them. Okay, so you're not the I'm not in or... it, though, no.
0: So you're just going to be doing producing and directing. What's and the difference? directing?
1: What's producing? Someone asked me. Someone else asked me that today. What is producing? And I say, I, I just don't know. Really, it's just sort of sitting around, <laughs> kind of going, I like the blue one. <laughs> you
0: know, <laughs> making sure that the catering is good. So yeah. the, the producer in you says, I like the blue one. The director says, That's the one we use. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, BookWaves.com. Or find the Book Waves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.